Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Guys Stock Talk Show with the Value Guys. I'm Val Hughes. And I'm Momentum. And we are 40-year Wall Street veterans who have had to take on secret identities and go underground in order to provide you with a handful of stock ideas here on the show each week. You've seen our faces on TV. You've seen us quoted in the news, but our bosses would never allow our unfiltered views on the air. So we've disguised our voices and they'll never know. This week, we have three somewhat exciting new ideas for you from the rest uh, directly from Wall Street but before we get to that a completely new segment of the show called hey what's going on in the stock market so it's uh, Monday July 20th and uh, the Russell 2000 was down the Nasdaq was up the Dow Jones was flat and uh, there you have it Mo, that's our new section. What happened on Wall Street today, or whatever I named it? And now a uh, I like that. Uh, that yeah, I like that in-depth stuff. It's snappy. It's snappy. It's a little heavy. Um, <laughs> well, someone said, "Hey, you're not uh, talking about the stocks." Anyway, uh, more, more on those that. names, more on other names. Um, but we've got some important disclosures. I almost neglected the. To mention first, this show is for entertainment purposes only. That's not a guarantee. Secondly, Mo and I are professional analysts and investment uh, managers during the week. Um, we talk to management. We do forecasts. We do a lot of careful analysis. Here, we've been careful to do absolutely none of that. Third, we do not have your interests in mind. We only have our own greedy interests in mind. My attorneys remind me to tell you. And fourth, uh, and I know this doesn't apply to Mo, but in my case. I've been heavily drinking. See all our disclosures, comments, photos, stocks that we've talked about in the past, links to all of our shows at www.thevalueguys.com. And before we get too far into the show, please subscribe, find our show other places, send an email. We both have email. I'm Val at thevalueguys.com and Mo is Mo at thevalueguys.com. We try to answer all of our emails. So see all that. And then um, let me turn uh, to Mo for a beloved section of the show we like to call um, a little bit of Wall Street news. Mo, take it away. Well, um, I, got a, I got a letter over the weekend and uh, someone wrote in this, Dear Mo, I'd like to be a stock market analyst like you guys. You make it seem so easy. Did really? You? Was this your mom writing it? This was actually I know this guy, <laughs> which I'm sure is why he said, which is why he said this. He said, "So uh -huh. you make it seem so easy. What do you guys do all day?" Well, and uh, you know, because we 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 can knock off we can knock off three companies in about ten minutes a company, and it seems like it's pretty in depth. And so then then what do we do besides we get our shoes shined, we order out lunch, we go to uh, well, I do have a full time job coffee. over here, Mo. I know you know you once did so, but you so, can probably relate back. So you know we got some good feedback on you know kind of the inside baseball part of of, of wall street i wanted to share something with all you analyst wannabes because you think it's easy let me let me walk you through a little bit of my day or i should say my day when i was an analyst every research firm on the sell side has a morning call 
and it's usually between seven and seven thirty. Every every firm is a little bit different, but in my firm, if you had to be ready if you were going to change the rating on a stock, or you were going to you were going to give a presentation on a stock the way we do on this show. You had to be in the except office. more serious. I just throw in, and you yeah, can be fired if it doesn't go well. Unlike this show, which we all be, be could be fired. Yeah. So we start off the morning at uh, at six o'clock in the morning. Your analysis has to be written, ready to go. Handouts have to be produced. You have to meet with the compliance department to make sure everything is checked off and and that's good. You might need to meet with the head of corporate finance because if you are going to talk about a company that investment banking has an interest in and you're going to downgrade the stock, uh, they're going to kind of want to know about it so they don't get blindsided. You're going to need to talk with the trading department because if you're going to recommend a stock and there's going to be overwhelming demand from the retail side and we don't have enough inventory in order to fulfill that demand, they want to get a heads up. You might need to talk to the head of retail. Because if retail sales has got a big interest in this name and specific offices have a huge interest, they often are local offices that are buying a company that's a local company, they want to get a heads up. All of these people have to be put to bed, all the ducks in are in a row before 7.15 in the morning. Now you got your research call, that's 7.30. You got about three to five minutes. You not only have to get your point across, but it's got to be compelling because you have every institutional sales guy in the system listening to you. You've got the bond department, you've got the retail department, you've got the investment banking department, you've got compliance, you've got the head of research, all there listening to you. Well, and you have other analysts that would prefer all those people you just mentioned spend their day on their stuff and not yours. So. Precisely. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of competition for that microphone and you might have six or seven analysts giving their pitch. The more compelling your pitch is in the morning, the, the, the more likely you're gonna get those guys to, to, to run with your idea. So, okay, so it's 7.30 in the morning, what happens then? You literally jog, you jog back to your office and you gotta start calling your top clients, the top owners of this stock, the top clients of the firm and give them the pitch on a one-on-one -on -one basis, why you're doing what you're doing, a little bit of a nuance, explain. If they've got a big holding and you've just downgraded the stock, you've got some hand-holding to do with, so, so you don't lose the client. Now, bear in mind, I think it's worth saying that um, some of these laws change around in terms of, you know, it's a, and I'll just weigh in here, it's a very tricky thing. Sometimes people ask, you know, uh, inside information and Wall Street analysts, et cetera. Um, I'll just say in my long career, I never saw any inside information. Um, if you do better research than someone else and you learn things they don't know, that's allowed. But what Mo's talking about right now is very tricky. Which client you call when and who gets to know what when. It's amazing, but the kind of work that Mo and I do, or even on this show, sometimes can be considered inside information. All of a sudden, the analysts, their own opinion that they're about to change, as crazy as it sounds, is inside information that you got to be very, very careful with how you disseminate, wouldn't you say, Mo? A absolutely. Now, from about, I'd say from 8 o'clock or 8.30 in the morning till almost noon, your phone is ringing and you may have the company calling you up and saying, 
either at a boy. Thanks for recommending. Or we're going to get you fired. They might be saying that. What the hell are you doing? (laughs) You may have other analysts that have an affected stock. So you downgrade. We were talking about Amazon yesterday. You downgrade Amazon and the uh, the technology analyst that's in cloud computing calls you and says you're an idiot because oh i mean computing is so you've got to deal with that if you you downgrade a stock mo it's a shit show let's face it you've got you've got um you've got the the bond department like i said corporate finance now you may say i'm i'm downgrading a stock or i'm let's say you're going to upgrade a stock and you know the stock's probably going to move about a point or two, and corporate finance is about to announce that their client is about to buy this company. And you've just That's a bad scene, deal. yeah. So you are always walking a tightrope. You need to be able to be objective on a company, but if you downgrade a stock and you think management's going to give you the first call back when, you, when you're looking for information, you're not going to get it. So well, we know have- some guys get banned from calls and all that, yeah. which I think some courts said you can't do, but um, we face that as well. You're, you're facing a lot of consequences. Um, and the point to make is a Wall Street analyst, companies think they have analysts to help the bankers and help their big corporate clients, you know, sell businesses and raise money. But over the years, um, a lot of analysts felt that their constituents were the pension managers and the fund managers on the other side who were investing for their clients. And you're really walking, when you think about where the marketplace is, Mo and I's day, when I was on the sell side, he spent his career there. On one hand, you're talking to people that want to sell the stock and they want a great price and they want you to help make it to you know, overpriced. And then you guys have guys that want to buy it and they want to pay as little as possible. I mean, you're truly the marketplace is on your desk, Mo. Right. And so, you know, (laughs) there's a lot more than simply looking at a spreadsheet and saying earnings are up or revenues look good or the balance sheet looks good. The political elements of the, of the job are probably more challenging than the analytical elements of the job. And what makes a very good analyst is his ability to navigate all of those conflicting, and I mean conflicting interests, yep. and uh, be able to move forward and be an analyst. The other thing, and I'll just throw this last part out, is you're sitting at your desk and you're the analyst and typically you follow 12 to 15 companies. Your phone can ring at any time. And it's, it's, the, it's the portfolio manager at Fidelity. And he's the largest owner of this stock in the world. And he can ask you any question, any question he wants. He might say, hey, I just saw that on company ABC that you follow that the, uh, that the president of the uh, international food division has resigned. What does that mean? And you've got to know. He may say, I just saw that one of the competitors has introduced a new technological innovation. What does that mean? And you've got to know. He may say, hey, there's a bill pending in the Senate, and it's a Senate bill N3-147. What do you make of that? And you've got to know. Because if you say, I don't know, twice in one phone call, You're, you're not going to be that guy's primary source of information. And you've got to know all of those elements on 15 separate companies. Yeah. Well, you're juggling all of that, right? You've got different clients and, you know, you may know that that particular guy needs to know a certain thing. And wouldn't you say it's true, Mo, that you had different clients, you knew what they needed. You might go find specific information for that specific guy at Fidelity because the, 
the commissions that Fidelity pays. That's how analysts ultimately get paid. If you're serving those clients well, they do trades through your firm and you get a piece of that, as does the trader and the banker and everyone else. And, uh, and, and you, you, know, you cater to those big clients. It's part of how it, how it works. Well, so there's, there's the somewhat of an answer on what do we do all day. Let me tell you something. It is, what about the modeling part, though, Mo? The, you've, got, you've got the modeling. Well, in my case, I had a pretty, thankfully, I had a pretty good team. So I had seven junior analysts, and each one of those analysts was charged with a different area to look at. So I had one analyst that would, would do a lot of the modeling, and he was sort of the back the back room guy, he did the modeling. I had another analyst that, a junior analyst that did some of the boilerplate writing. I had another analyst that handled some of the C accounts and he would call some of the retail brokers. And so I would look at the models and I would review them. Thankfully, I didn't do a lot of that because a lot of those times are, you, know, you, get a, you get a major announcement, those kids are in the office they're all, they're all doing all-nighters. Well, and what people, listeners may, you know, <laughs> this is an interesting conversation. I don't think we've really talked about this on the show, but it is jobs we both had, is that when you're running hard, and it's usually during a deal period, whenever all the engines are going, I mean, you're running a company. And you, you're, you know, you've got your publishing department, you've got your, uh, your laboratory over here, your distribution, um, you've got people putting messaging out to all the, uh, the media, you want to make sure you're top of mind with everybody. It's a, it, the analysis part is actually on the sell side, it's a minority of the, the things you're working at as the guy on the top of the food chain. Now, I always kept modeling in my own hands because I always wanted to do what I'm doing right now, which is run money. Um, but I did have a person and I did my own writing. But the way I split up my team, Mo, was I put different people on groups of names. So you do these three, you do these three. And I would have people doing all elements of but a small group of names in effect growing my own future uh, analysts and uh, there's lots of ways to do that one of the great things about that job and I always encourage young people that come to me you know looking for positions out in the world and they want to be analysts on the buy side and I just say don't do that don't do that if you can have a successful career on Wall Street as an analyst, as at first as a junior, then as an analyst, I literally think you could go run anything. You can certainly go to the buy side. It's easier. It's like going to college first and then going to high school later. Almost any job you have after Wall Street is easy, easier. No, and, and, the, the, and, and so people wonder why are the hours so crushing? We typically, I was usually in the office Usually I was in the office around six o'clock. And if I wasn't taking someone out to dinner, I usually left the office between nine and nine thirty. And that was six days a week. And that yeah. was six days a week for twenty years. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that's what we do all day. Yeah. That's why it's complicated. So what we do here might seem easy, but boy, in the real world, pretty tough. Well, because we do absolutely none of that here. And while we do have a cocktail or two on the show, not so much in the office anymore, I should say. Although I, I, do, I, I do have one story, a quick story. No smoking in the office either. That used to be, they used to be smoke-filled rooms in the offices. When, no. when, when Val and I were, were, were young pups in the business, 
we would go to these luncheons that companies had because yeah. there was free food at the luncheons. And one of my first lunches that I, and they also served cocktails there for what this it was, was amazing back in those days at lunch. They, they just were, feed that, you drinks for hours. 82 or 81 <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah. So there was open bar, there was free food. We were starving analysts. And at lunchtime, we would go to an analyst. We would go to a company presentation for food. And at nighttime, there were two or three bars that, that had uh, buffets and we would go there to eat. But so we went to a, we went to a, a presentation by the U.S. Shoe Company. <laughs> and I don't remember the lunch, but you had to give them your business card in order to attend the luncheon. And it was like- No card, the, no dessert, something I, like that. Probably. It was like at the Union League Club or the, the, the Metropolitan Club. For the next 22 years of my career, I got the U.S. Shoe <laughs> <laughs> aren't they bankrupt by now and they must orderlies and and that was the largest hmm. price i ever had to pay for a free lunch <laughs> <laughs> well um those meetings are great for uh young analysts to go to because you know you can rub elbows with senior people ask a lot of dumb questions that your boss doesn't necessarily see and, and get uh, a free lunch. And get a free lunch. And in those days, free drinks. And there were always a couple of drunk guys walking around at lunch back in those days. And again, institutional salesmen, not to divest, but I remember you'd have a day marketing in Manhattan. And, you know, this can be 12 meetings, Mo, right? One after another, including a lunch, a dinner, blah, blah, blah. And I remember all the time you'd show up at lunch and there would be some sales guy who's been there 40 years and his job was to pack the table so there'd be 10 people around eagerly listening to you you wouldn't get to eat and yep. the salesman's drunk because yep. he just had three or four martinis he doesn't say a word his main job is to pay your main job is to keep everyone entertained which you know they're eating good food anyway so it was quite a thing and i guess um you know, with COVID, I wonder what all those people are doing now. What are they doing? Eating sandwiches in their homes? I mean, they're, I don't know. They're Zooming where at least they get to eat. I remember I used to carry power bars in my soup coat. Yeah. Because you really did. You <clears throat> Unless you were, unless your sales guy was pretty good and got you to the meeting a half an hour early at the restaurant and said, quick, you can eat something. Or he'd hand you a sandwich between meetings. You know, he'd here, I know you need it. There were some good ones. There were, sure. but a lot of times you, you you went, you went right through the day without a single bite of food. Yeah. But at any rate, so there's our little Wall Street. Okay. There's an inside Wall and Street. And there's our show people. for today, right? Yep. Or what? Oh, thank you, everybody. No. No, we do have a couple stock ideas, I think. And, um, you know, um, I don't know about you, Mo. I, had a, I did a screen this week. So the meat of our show, a couple of ideas that are, you know, usually medium or maybe a little better. Um, and I just did a, uh, a, a screen I like to call quality companies at good prices. I think I did this last week. And as companies move up and down through their high and low, 52-week, what have you, they move in and out of the screen. And uh, it's much like, uh, you know, anything that's on sale, different things move in and out. And you got to look at what's in there each week or every few weeks. And a lot of times it's stuff that's recently been disappointing. And then you have to decide, oh, 
Is it going to be disappointing forever and from now on, or is it going to be just medium? Now, in most case, um, and this is true of most, um, you know, PE-oriented investors, if something's having trouble and you're waiting for it to recover and you're trying to buy it at a good price, you let someone else do that and you move along. Wouldn't you say, Mo? That's a lot yeah. of uh, yeah. growth investors. Yeah. So it's really a different universe. But I had a couple this week that I'd call, um, again, they've been created because of the environment. One is, um, is Fastenal, which uh, provides a lot of industrial tools and equipment and all kinds of gadgets um, in a giant distribution network all over the country. And the thought that business is going to be slow has, has, uh, has, you know, given this one a good entry point compared to historical levels. And then the other one also, um, again, industrial production down, people don't know what's going to happen. So Knight Swift is a, is a trucking company, Knight Swift Transportation largest in the country. Uh, they've had a nice run off of the low. Um, and so these aren't, you know, again, March 23rd would have been a better day for all of these. But um, it's the kind of thing that I think um, has a decent entry point here. So those are the two I was looking at, Mo. What about you? Well, you know, we've been talking the last um, the last couple of weeks about paradigm shifts and, you know, what 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 this virus is doing to the way people shop, entertain, um, and, and live their lives. And uh, you wouldn't think that a company like Walmart would be a beneficiary of a paradigm shift, but they've been moving heavily into, and they've just had a couple of initiatives where they're ramping up their grocery delivery business. And um, you know, only 3% of groceries are purchased online right now, 3%. And um, most insiders think that that's gonna go to 20% by 2025, that's a ramp up to a hundred billion dollars. Well, that's what happened to the rest of retail and it's on its way. I think here, you know, um, everyone's just been taught they can do that and they've learned how. So I think that's a huge leg up and that may be, that may be something that now is unstoppable in terms of that market share. Um, yeah, I think we said last week that the, uh, the uh, CEO of Microsoft said, there's been two years of um, two years of technology um, conversion in two months because of the coronavirus. And what she meant by that was that it might have taken two years for people to gradually warm up to the idea of buying everything online, particularly their groceries. But with the coronavirus, that that has forced that issue for an awful lot of people. I mean, I think an entire generation of adoption has been shrunk down into three months. You know, the grandmas who were never going to do this are doing it. The banking, the retail, um, you know, dial phones. People died never using a push button phone because they didn't have to. Here, it's like someone took away all the dial phones and gave everyone a push button phone, and now you have to use it. Um, and so I think, you know, that 20% is probably a pretty easy number. But let me jump in here with one, and then you will give a value name. I'm going to lead here with um, Fastenal. It's just, uh, it's a great little company. The ticker is F-A-S-T. Um, they create, as you might imagine, fasteners. They have, I'm just reading here, they have uh, 400,000 customers. 
and 14 distribution centers all around the country. They serve small industrial, uh, small business with tools and fasteners, which is screws, but also anything that you need to make something, which is pretty cool. Their gross profit margins have always been really strong in the upper 40s. They continue. Operating margin in the 20s, that continues. Um, you know, EBIT margin in the 20s, they don't have a lot in between there, which is a sign of good, pretty good quality. Um, their debt is 10% uh, of assets or less, so they're you know, they're very well financed, very strong company. One of the most amazing things about this company and the key to this particular quality companies at good prices screen is that the return on assets here is just continually in the mid to upper 20s. I mean, who's doing that? Almost no one. This company is in rare air with that type of consistent return on assets. Return on equity in the 30s, return on capital in the upper 20s. And this is with you know, almost no leverage. So just the metrics, all that just tells you they're doing something that uh, no one can compete with. And I believe what that is, is not only their breadth of product, but also um, uh, their distribution. And they're really the go-to guy for, um, for, for so many uh, products that it's hard to displace them um, in that regard. A um, couple of the other things I just mentioned here is that it um, it's not exactly a super cheap stock. So value guy, yes, but as I said a few weeks ago, um, you know sometimes value is you're paying less than you should for something of this quality, same as paying less than you should for something of a certain growth rate. In a lot of the um, sort of academic. Uh, valuation models, those two things are a little bit indifferent. So this guy, in terms of valuation, it's just a little bit expensive, but the reason it comes through on my screen is simply that it's it's a bit cheaper than normal. So right now, it's 20 times EBITDA, enterprise value to EBITDA is 20 times, and historically, it's um, it's just often a little bit higher than that, not a lot. It is higher than the industry, but they do better in terms of returns and a debt to capital. So better quality and better returns. It's worth a little bit of a premium. But to me, 20 times, you know, that seems expensive, but I like to flip it around. One over 20 is 5%. That's a 5% cash on cash return. If we bought this company today, all of us got together we would earn 5%. And then return on assets with no leverage and no erosion in that number is a little bit of a proxy for growth. One of the things that I think is gonna happen out of this COVID period is a lot of uh, you know less well-financed companies are gonna go out of business or lose share or lose the trust of their uh, customer base to where companies like Fastenal, my guess is, are gonna pick up share. So there you have it, Mo. Um, it's 5% uh, cash on cash. Let's call it 15% growth. Just taking a little haircut to the historical. That still gets me up to 20% uh, total return on this one with uh, what I think is almost, I won't say no risk, but in terms of permanent risk of capital. Um, if everyone goes out of business, Fastenal is the company that'll sell people stuff to like clean up the mess, basically. So fasten all, F-A-S-T, and uh, there you have it. Go take a look. Entertainment purposes only, by the way.
What do you think, Mo? I like it. I like it. Okay. Next, next name. Uh, okay. You want me to do another one here in a row? Yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. Morning call. Uh, hey, I don't have the ticker. You're fired, Val. Okay. Sorry, buddy. All right. Wait a minute. Okay. Here we go. Night transportation ticker KNX. What do I like about it? This is the largest trucking company in America. What does that mean? They have the best economies of scale in America. If all the trucking companies go out of business, guess who's going to get all the business? night swift transportation. So one of the things I like about low cost producers is that when you have your worst case scenario, they benefit from it. They get all the customers that went to, you know, were with firms that are now out of business. These guys, um, why did they pop up on the screen? Well, they're high quality. So um, they've earned really nice returns on assets for a long time in the upper T, upper uh, you know, upper single digits, nine, 10%, which for a trucker is very good. They lever a little bit into the mid teens for return on equity and return on capital. Now, in the last couple of years, we've had a couple of problems. One is fuel prices, and the other is uh, truck. Uh, demand. So they've had problems getting drivers. They've had problems um, with the cost of vehicles. And that's put a little damper into their business the last year or two. And of course, now we're into COVID. So um, I felt that trucking was already at a point where it was at a cyclical low just to the turnaround in fuel. And, um, you know, basically the, the, the production of trucks slowed down to meet demand over the last few years. So we're going to get back to a little better balance of supply and demand. Fuel prices are down. And I think that um, in the face of, you know, trade and smaller companies going out of business, it's quite possible that night uh, will benefit in a meaningful way on, on share gains. Their growth the last few years has been a little sluggish, but they're big enough to take advantage of weaker players in the business. So I suspect they're going to use their, uh, you know, reasonably priced equity to, to do a couple of, a, tran uh, a couple of transportation acquisitions here of competitors. And of course that's hard to forecast, but um, right now, given their valuation, which um, on a, uh, enterprise value to EBITDA basis is 10 times. So again, flip it around, that's 10% cash on cash. They grow at GDP, maybe a little better as they gain shares. So 13, you know, 14% cash on cash return and the upside of maybe doing some accretive acquisitions. Um, I like that, you know, um, and particularly as we come out of this COVID period, I think you're going to have 12 months forward that's pretty decent. Um, what else can I say? The, the, the balance sheet's in pretty good shape. Less than one times debt to EBITDA. Debt to capital is 8%. You always got to watch that. And I think that includes any leases that are on the balance sheet because that accounting changed a few years ago, but I would check that out. Um, EBIT to interest, very nice coverage, 17 times. So uh, long story short, Mo, this one is cheaper than it usually gets. It's got very good returns for a trucker. And uh, I think the next few years in terms of trade and uh, their economies of scale are going to be beneficial for their business model. And I'd be taking a look at this one. Night Swift Transportation, ticker KNX. That's it. Excellent. Val out. <clears throat>
What do All you right, think? Let's, add, let's add a name to the list and it's Walmart. Ticker symbol is WMT. Had a little bit of a back off today to 131. Not that, not that that makes it cheap, but a um, couple of observations on, on, on Walmart. Walmart is a lot like Amazon at a fraction of the PE. Amazon's traded at about 139 multiple. Walmart's trading at 26. Now, to be fair, if you really wanted to do an apples to apples comparison, we learned last week that Amazon, a big part of the driver of their business is not delivering groceries. It's their cloud computing, which was kind of news to me. So what you really need to do in order to get an apples to apples comparison is back out the part of the PE ratio that Amazon gets for its cloud computing and do a better, better comparison. But at 26 times uh, forward earnings, um, it's clearly a lower multiple than Amazon, even though they're moving into the same business. Now, we had said earlier that right now, roughly 3% of groceries are purchased online. And uh, most people in the business believe that that number is going to go to 20%. And it could get there by 2025, which is pretty quick. That puts that at a billion dollar business. And Walmart is moving into that pretty quickly. Now, an interesting thing, I didn't know this, 90% of Americans live within 10 miles of a Walmart, 90%. Yeah, not a and shock, I don't know. What a lot of e-tailers are, are, are understanding, uh, like Amazon, and their purchase of uh, Whole Foods is that it's one thing to have an e-commerce presence, but you also need a physical presence, whether it's for distribution, whether it's for people that just wanna go physically see the product, and with that many stores, I think they've got something like 3,500 stores in the United States. Um, that gives them a very big footprint to leverage. Now, they recently introduced something called Walmart Plus. Pretty cool idea. We, we buy our food from, from Whole Foods and uh, they don't charge you. Uh, they, there's no markup and uh, the deliveries are free. Walmart is gonna charge you $13 a month, $98 for the year. And for that Walmart Plus membership, you get unlimited groceries delivered to your front door. They're in, I think they're in 1,700 stores. They're going to roll that out to more stores. That puts them on pretty good course to compete with Whole Foods. Now, um, is Whole Foods that delivery, does that come with a Prime membership? Or is comes that with it? a Prime membership Prime for the, the Apples yeah. Apples comparison. Mm -hmm. um, so very intriguing in that they're in a, in a big part of the, the market and the rising tide lifts all ships. Here's another part of the analysis that we don't have time to do on the show. It's just the way we, we mentioned last week that Amazon's got cloud computing. You'd have to get in there and do some surgery to figure out what that business is and how it's growing. But Walmart's got a big investment on the international side in a company called Flipchart, Flipkart. It's the, uh, it's the second biggest e-commerce retailer in India. I think they and their partners just put another billion and change into that, into that subsidiary. So as they roll out more international, that's another driver. And this may or may not be representative of, of what their future looks like as they move further into e-commerce. But pre-pandemic, yeah, I mean, it's a huge company. It's a mature, big company. Pre-pandemic, their, their growth rate was about 1.8%. And in the first quarter, it was up 9.7%. I don't know that that's a blip, but but it, it certainly is encouraging, and it certainly would would underscore why the stocks had kind of a 
pretty nice couple of months. Mm -hmm. um, big picture, big, big, big picture. This is a company that's raised its dividend every single year since 1974. The yield isn't great, it's, you know, it's under 2%, but they have raised that dividend and you do have that as a kind of a safety net underpinning the stock of things get a little bit dicey in the market. And then lastly, go look at a five-year chart. Go look at a five-year chart of this company and ask yourself if you wanna be in this name because it's been a really terrific, terrific five-year play. Um, I'd love to see it pull back here. I'd be watching it. If I, if I was gonna do a little work on it, I'd look at a couple of things. One, I'd look at their international side. I'd get a better flavor for what people are saying about Walmart Plus. Um, their balance sheet, I'm going to leave it to you because I don't know how to read any of those numbers. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, that's good you had that team. Um, yeah, yeah, very good. Um, but it is a, it's, a, it's a big name. It's got a nice dividend. Um, most, of, most analysts have got a 150 target price on it. You know, that's a, you're up 8%, so I'd look, at a, I'd look at a pullback from this level. But from a long-term perspective, and again, something playing to this theme we've been talking about are paradigm shifts from the, the, the COVID-19 virus. This is a name I'd throw up on the chart. Okay. Well, um, you know, Walmart is a name that was easy to miss in the 70s and 80s because it was always priced so expensive as a growth name. And those days are gone, you know. Um, but it's clearly got economies of scale. I just think that it's interesting uh, to compare Walmart and Amazon. And actually, you know, um, Walmart was a big paradigm shift company uh, and took the business from Sears. And their trick was they didn't have the internet, but they had the interstate. So Sears had put big warehouses in each town so they could serve people well. Then the interstate got built. So during the 60s, Walmart basically served everybody from, you know, a little place in Arkansas and um, and where they could drive trucks to. So they were all they took advantage of a lower cost distribution model put in place by the government's investment in the interstate. Then the government invested in something called the Internet and Amazon has taken advantage of that. They both have very similar, if you want to call it, take up curves of of, of, you know, consumers figuring out, oh, this is a better way to shop. Oh, no, this is a better way to shop. So I just, they're both almost, they're kind of mature now. I mean, Amazon's still growing fast, but I thought it would be worth, Mo, to throw out a couple of interesting statistics between these two behemoths, Amazon versus Walmart. So let me start with a number that's the key to everything, assets. You buy stuff so your company can make stuff to sell. Okay, Walmart's been a long, around a long time. They have $233 billion of assets. Okay, how about Amazon? Amazon has $221 billion of assets. These companies have spent nearly the same amount on all their assets now. That's after depreciation. But that's fascinating. Okay, how about revenue? Well, Walmart, um, they've been around longer. Their total revenue. 134 billion quarterly. That's a quarterly number. I just happen to have it here. And they generate that on 232 billion of, of assets. So 134. Amazon, 75 billion 
on 220. So Walmart in terms of asset utilization, and this is shocking, Mo, shocking. Why? Because Amazon has the internet and they have centralized distribution. How is it that Amazon is not as uh, asset um, productive as um, as Walmart? Now, yeah, just, I'll throw, I'll throw yeah. one thing out to consider, and that's, again, if we were doing this the way we, we would do it on a professional basis, we would be comparing division to division. In other words, how much, how many assets are there in a cloud? Well, yeah, but and revenues are revenues. I mean, but are you front end loading the assets in order to generate future revenues? And that's where certainly possible. Would, yeah, would, certainly would. possible. But I just think it's interesting to look at these things. Now, here's another number return on invested capital. Um, Walmart, 11.6% old line company. And that is, um, that's, I think, a trailing 12 month number. Amazon, 13.1, not that far off. And I'll throw out one more, um, return on assets. Also just a big picture number that's worth paying attention to. Walmart, 6.4%. Amazon, the drum roll please. 5.2. So Walmart's beating Amazon, but it could on returns, but it could exactly be for the reason you're saying, Mo, they're, they're growing faster and that's why they get a higher multiple. But it is clearly something that if you had the time to, to take them apart, look at the constituent pieces, the, uh, the lower PE ratio, being in the right part of the market. Um, the physical presence, I think, is going to prove down the road to be a very big deal. Yeah. I think it's the reason why Amazon bought Whole Foods and Whole Foods doesn't have anywhere near that kind of footprint as the uh, Walmart stores. And so to the extent that that becomes a big part of the uh, of the e-commerce, especially in the grocery area, e-commerce uh, formula, um, I think I think Walmart's pretty well positioned for that. Yeah. OK, well, those are three stocks and. Um... I guess we just have one more segment to the show that people like. It's called Walking Through National Economic Trends. I have, we have very little time for that, of course, but we're gonna get back to it right after this. everyone that was exciting um and so i know look we got it we're busy mo's busy i'm busy i think the show is getting very long now um but i like to throw out a few economic thoughts here just because um it's worth paying attention to you know the big picture what do you think mo you want to hear well, a few the one the one i want you to comment on is the one everybody's looking at which is the home mortgage rates are the lowest they have ever been in the history of the world. Now, I, I don't know where mortgage rates were for like, say, Paleolithic 
man. Well, uh, they were low. They were low then. If you're buying a cave, I don't know what it was. But, but as far back as this goes, which isn't quite as far back as Adam and Eve, but it goes back pretty far, these are the lowest mortgage rates in the history of the world. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you should bring that up, Mo, because what I have dialed on is Fred economic data from the Federal Reserve of St. Louis. You can dial in mortgage rates, 30-year mortgage rates, and you're exactly right. This chart goes back a long way. It doesn't go all the way back to cavemen times, but almost 1971. And in 1971, the rate was 7.5. And then in 1982, it was 17. Wow. Remember that? Um, and then it's just, you know, it's just, I know people think it goes up and down, but when you get 30 years down the road or 40 years, it basically has been going down. So in 1981, it hit 18.44%. That was the high of all time. And now the most recent data point, 2.98 for July 16th, 2020, the lowest on this page. And isn't it fun to live through a period where you could experience, Mo, both the high and the low in mortgage rates? It's fun, right? No? You remember, I remember my senior year taking out a student loan. I didn't need it, but I took out a student loan and I bought a CD, not the most complicated financial transaction in the world, but it was pretty easy because you could buy CDs at your local savings and loan. And I think my I think I was getting about an 18% rate on the CD and I think my student loan was seven. So yeah. I didn't even know the word arbitrage back then, but that's what I was. That's Every what college I was student learned it quickly. Well, it's interesting. Um, I just did a little homework in the shop about Wait a this. You did homework? Well, not for the show, but oh, in the oh. shop if, for, for clients. I did some homework. You've always got to figure out what to write your quarterly letter about. And whereas this takes little time, that I actually spend some time on. And the question is, we didn't talk about it today, but is the stock market too expensive? Are all these stocks too expensive? Well, longtime listeners of the show know that I like to talk about cash on cash returns. So PEs that are, or even this mortgage rate, 1%, 2%, you got to think about the 10-year bond. And if you look at the 10-year bond, I think, I don't have it up here, but I believe it's a little less than 1%. Let me type it in here, 10-year. And if we just say it's even just 1%, you got to remember, that's 100 times the coupon. So when you think of stocks at 30 times or 25 times PE, flip it around. E over P on a 25 times stock, 25 times expensive through any period in time. Why? Because interest rates are the lowest they've been through every period of time. Do the inverse. Interest rates, if you take PEs of interest rates, which are 2%, the PE is 50. So um, I always like to look at the real return. And the way to do that is take E over P and all this data is at Fred. I think I downloaded E over P um, that's a earnings yield. Subtract inflation. Now you have a real earnings yield. Go look at the one-year and the 10-year treasuries. Those are risk-free rates. Um, the 10 is probably a bit more applicable to stocks, but some people are scared to death. So one is truly a better risk-free rate. And look at the spreads. And what you're going to find is 
you think stocks are expensive right now, but on a basis of a real yield of earnings, so E over P after accounting for inflation, stocks are cheaper than they historically are. They're not the cheapest, which looks like 09 type of times, but still pretty cheap. And so um, I think that's what I wanna leave listeners with. If you go to Fred, look at the 10 year interest rates, do the inverse, look at the mortgage rates, do the inverse, and uh, you'll find that um, it, it's explained by interest rates. Then the other quick thing I wanna talk about, Mo, in terms of economics is just, I made a point last week to talk about some of the economics that are coming in here with COVID. So I just wanna revisit. We've had a print here on uh, personal consumption expenditures. So um, a May 31 print, that's still a little old, but that was up 14% versus the prior year after being down in the prior month. Um, housing starts just printed for June 30 up 17% from last month. So these mortgage rates, Mo, are attracting people into the housing market. And then I'll give one more, U.S. durable goods, new orders. This is um, right from the, uh, right out of Fred, USDGNO is the um, ticker on that, up 15.8% versus a month ago, and that's after a 20% decline in the prior couple of months. So I'd say the economy is healing. Uh, the stock market is not expensive historically. And uh, you got Val feeling a little bit bullish here, Mo. And we're going to live happily ever after. I think so. That's my, that's my plan. Um, good to, it's good to close a show out on an upbeat note. Yeah. Do we have any, any other happy thoughts? None on this end, so I guess we'll see everybody next week. All right. Good night. Good night, Mo. Good night, Val.